Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. Now, we're going to move into today's sermon, but if you guys will stand as Harper reads our word for the day. Um, today I'll be reading Mark 10, 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, guys, have a seat. Have a seat. Nice work, Harper. Thank you for doing that. Hey, church. How's it going? It's a little warm. Not bad, but it's only going to get worse, I guess. (laughs) So my name is Taylor Mickelson. I'm the next-gen pastor here. I get to hang out with the kids and um, the high schoolers and the middle schoolers are who I spend most of my time with, um, which if I have a moment here, if you are in fifth grade or younger and you're not normally in here, will you just stand up real quick? And if you're not very tall, you can stand on a chair. Yes, you have my permission, but you'll go ahead and stand up, stand up right now. So people in the congregation can see you guys. Yeah, 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 yeah. Round of applause. So I love I love Celebration Sundays. Stay standing for just a second. I love Celebration Sundays because we get to look at who the movers and shakers of the kingdom are as they are right now. And we get to look at where you guys are headed. And it's just a great reminder that there is another generation of movers and shakers that are coming through. But today, kids, you are more than that. Today, we're gonna be talking about some of the things that you guys do just because you guys are kids. And we as adults, we can learn from them. And kids, I want you to pay attention to these traits that we look at today. Guard them, keep them, because you're going to need them for your entire life. Go ahead, have a seat. Thank you guys. So while I was working on today's message, I had basketball on the mind as I often do. And as many of you know, basketball is a fast game with quick decisions that need to be made. But speed, if left unchecked, can lead to a sloppy game. Errors are made, bad passes happen. And I just think of this phrase that my dad and his friend Jim always said to me while I was playing ball. They would say, be quick, but don't hurry. Mistakes are made when we hurry, but quickness moves with intentionality. So today, I, have a ton, I don't have a ton of time, so we're gonna be moving quick, but we will not hurry. Are you ready, church? Yeah. All right. So we've been in Mark for a hot minute, and we're now over halfway through the book. Thus far, Austin has looked at the kingdom of God, Katie preached on the kingdom of darkness, and then Austin tackled Peter and the boys and their renewal in the Holy Spirit, as well as the transfiguration. And then just last week, Austin spoke on divorce, which I thought was extremely powerful. And if you have not heard it, I think you should go back and listen to it. And my heart is still so full of gratitude that Today, that's not what I'm preaching on. No, instead, as you heard from Harper, I'm gonna be teaching on children and how they inform us on receiving God's kingdom. 
And doesn't it just feel right that I would be the guy up here doing this, the guy who's probably the most childish on staff talking about being childlike? Yeah. Before we get to today's passage, I want to backtrack just a bit. I want to look at some passages and mark that I don't think we were willfully ignoring, but in God's sovereign goodness, he knew what I was going to be teaching on. And it was such a gift to me that these were not talked about. So let's turn to Mark 5, 39 through 42. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking and they were immediately overcome with amazement. One of the highlight stories for me personally in the book of Mark, reading untranslated what Jesus said is an incredibly powerful thing. And I want you to take notice that Mark makes special care to point out that Jesus touches the little girl's hand. He takes her by the hand. We're gonna fast forward a little bit more to another spot where a child shows up in Mark 9, 35 through 37. And he sat down and called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Another incredible story in the book of Mark, and I have really no desire to unpack these stories today. Instead, I'm only interested in the fact that they use children in these stories. And once again, I want you to notice that Jesus touches the children, which at first seems innocuous to us because that's a cultural norm where we are. Heck, more of you in this room have touched my four-month-old son's Harvey, his little toes, than I can even keep track of. But such was not the case in the days of Jesus. And before we get to the days of Jesus, I want to start with a little exercise. And this is from my teaching days. Yes, I I was a teacher, a public teacher for a little while. And so I had this activity that we used to do called table talk. And I know we're not in tables, we're in rows, but the, the principle is still there and it'll carry over very nicely. You guys are going to brainstorm with the person or persons next to you for the next 15 seconds. Doesn't sound like a lot of time, but you're gonna be surprised at how much ground you can cover in 15 seconds. So the question up on the board is what makes a kid a kid? And I want you to take 15 seconds and talk about it. Okay, that was 15 seconds. Nicely done, well done. I heard some great discussions. I will say, you did a better job than most of my students ever did when I gave them time to discuss. So thank you for that. That just like warms my heart. CJ knows what I'm talking about. So, Caden and I, the worship pastor here, about a week and a half ago, we did this same activity. And before I share with you guys the list that we came up with, I just have to give you a qualifier. Caden and I are both young, very young, okay? Caden has no kids. I have a four-month-old. 
I have no idea why I thought we were qualified to come up with characteristics that God might think of with kids. But there we were in his office brainstorming, and this is what we came up with. The first one being honesty. And I put in parentheses, they're brutally honest. And some of you know what I'm talking about here. Kids are brutal with their honesty. And I, I love that brutally honest mentality. But a couple days ago, I had a kid be really brutally honest with me. He saw my backside and he said, oh my gosh, Taylor, you're going bald. <laughs> and he just, like it was just a knife to my heart in that moment. But it's just, they call it how they see it and they don't hold back. They're brutally honest at times. The second one was purity. Kids are innocent, are they not? They remind us of being pure. And that's why we have moments in, in life where it's really hard for us to acknowledge that there are things that taint that purity. It's why we partner with things like Life for the Innocent here at the church, because we care about retaining that purity for kids. The third one is simplicity. Kids are simple. You gotta be careful what you say to them sometimes because they might take it as gospel. And there was a little one that was 14 months old, last service. His name was Levi. He came from like the second to last row back there. He walked all the way to the front and he was just jumping there for joy. Just simple, just a simple moment of joy, perfectly exemplified in a little kid. And I just love the simplicity in kids. And these, these three things became the things that I was going to preach on for today's message. Caden, and I, uh, Caden really helped me come up with some profound passages of scripture. And of course, we had to find some baller quotes. We were using A.W. Tozier because that's Caden's favorite, Richard Foster, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, like the whole gamut. And I was relishing in this absolute humdinger of a sermon that I was gonna bring to you today. And then this crazy thing happened. <laughs> I found that in my research of this scripture, that purity and honesty and simplicity, though good things, couldn't have been what Jesus was thinking of when referring to what makes a kid a kid. So after, I, after my research, I reread the scripture of Mark 10, 13 through 16 with the cultural view of what makes a kid, to, a kid to them. And guess what? One by one, the three main points I had were evaporating into thin air. But God and his goodness did not leave me out to dry. No, instead, his spirit was illuminating to me the three things he actually wanted me to talk about today. And I explained the backstory for this for a simple reason. I don't think I'm alone in doing this. I think what I did in preparing for this sermon can be a helpful reminder to us that if we aren't careful, we bring our culture and context into a passage of scripture and then we map it onto that passage and somehow it already lines up with what we already think, believe, and care about. When in reality, scripture is sharper than any two-edged sword discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That means it should be convicting to us at times. That means it should be showing the ugly within us, revealing to us where we need to grow. And it's easy to get into the habit of reading our Bibles this way where it doesn't challenge us. And I don't think that we do this with malevolence or bad intent. I actually think it happens most of the time without us being aware that we're doing it. And don't get me wrong, part of the power of scripture is its ability to speak to us in any context. But that isn't the only way for us to read our Bibles. You can meditate on it, asking God to reveal something new and an understanding that's new and maybe profound. 
You can read it with the historical context, which in my opinion, unlocks the beautiful intricacies of the best story ever told and prepares us for that moment where someone tries to weaponize a passage out of scripture, or sorry, a passage out of context, which if I'm being honest, I think we might be the greatest perpetrators of doing that. And let me explain myself. Christians use scriptures out of context to look good or to sound poetic perhaps, or illustrate a point that defends their stance on a belief. And because we have weaponized verses against culture, what have they done in turn? They've scoured our holy scriptures and they've attempted to lift ideas that paint us into a much uglier image of God. And if we truly value God's word and the story that it tells, then we should know it better than anyone else. It's our responsibility to get into the word, to know what he has to say to us, because there is going to be a day where the good shepherd calls his sheep. But if we don't know his voice, then we're going to miss that invitation into abundant life. So with all that being said, let's reread our passage for today. Mark 10, 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. A couple of things right off the bat about what made a kid a kid in this time. They were seen as dirty. They had a very low social status. That is why I brought up those other passages from Mark earlier. It's so important to note that Jesus touched these children when he healed them or welcomed them into his presence because it was a subtle and very important way that Jesus was intentionally trying to elevate their status. Children were of the same social status of other unclean people groups of the time. In our culture, children are held at a very high regard. And I know this because I've seen it play out for the last four months with my son, Harvey. Strangers from far and wide have felt compelled to come over and tell me how cute he is or to ask him how old, or to ask how old he is. It's great. And I've had family and friends coming out of the woodwork asking to babysit him as if they would be hosting a foreign dignitary or something. It's incredible. Our culture holds up kids as the purest form of innocence and a thing to guard and to cherish. And I'm not here to say that we shouldn't view kids that way, but that's just simply not how they viewed them in Jesus's time. And we see it in the way the disciples dealt with children back in chapter nine and in this passage. Jesus tells them in chapter nine that if they want to receive him, that they have to receive children. And through receiving children, they receive him and they receive the father. And what do the disciples do the very next time that they see kids in Mark 10? They rebuke the people bringing them. Freaking idiots, right? I just, oh, I love it. I just, I, I relate to them so much because the disciples to me, do exactly what I know I have done before, which is you get this profound teaching, you immediately forget it, and then you go out and do the exact opposite thing. And in some ways, it's the human condition. But the disciples to me had a very small pass in this case because children in their culture had such extremely low status. 
that it would have been a hard switch for them to just make overnight. And additionally, the view of children is that they were just extremely immature adults, which you're probably saying to yourself, yeah, no duh, that's the point of an adult, or sorry, of a, of a child, that they are immature adults. But you have to understand what they meant by that. This immaturity meant that kids wouldn't have been allowed in Jesus's presence because they weren't mature enough to understand or appreciate his teachings, which if you're following is ironic because the disciples are clearly showing that they didn't understand the teaching in chapter nine. <laughs> but I digress because Jesus in his infinite patience is trying to once again teach the disciples the importance of, being, of receiving the kingdom like a child. And Jesus says, do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. To such is referring to the kids and the characteristics that they have. So what makes a kid a kid according to Jesus? And there are three things. We're gonna start with number one, welcoming. I think this might be one of the most important and beautiful things that kids do on a semi-regular basis that I wish I could just immediately adapt to my adulthood. Watching little kids become fast friends with whoever is at the park that day is just nothing short of amazing every time that it happens. And I think we all desire to be welcoming. But if we're really honest with ourselves, we suck at it pretty badly. And all it takes for us to stop being welcoming is seeing someone sport a rainbow shirt with, with purple colored hair or for someone to wear a Biden 2020 shirt or literally any of the 1,000 minor issues that we make so major that we won't speak to them, smile at them, or even ask them to have a meal with us. And church, I wanna share something that's been so convicting to me these last couple of weeks when I read it. It's out of Preston Sprinkle's book called People to Be Loved. And he says in that book, it's not good news if it's not good news for all people. And I'm not up here saying I don't do this. Because of this quote, I might be too keenly aware of just how often I'm doing this. And it shreds my soul because I have to go out of my way to try and kill that sin nature in me. And it's why I wish so badly and so desperately that I could just take that and adapt it to my life. No, I ha that's just not how it works. I have to be renewed by his spirit, spending time in his presence and in prayer, intentionally trying to look more and more like Jesus in those situations that I failed in. Do I get it right every time? No, absolutely not. But that's the whole point of sanctification. It's one degree of glory at a time. Number two, children, they receive freely. This goes back to Mark 9, where Jesus brings a child into their midst when he explains to them that those who receive a child also receive him and the Father. And reading this passage, I wondered out loud to myself, why does Jesus bring a child into their midst to illustrate this point? Besides the already established pattern that Jesus has from earlier of trying to elevate the least of these. Well, scholars agree that the child in, this, in the midst of the disciples here was supposed to be an example of the kind of receiving that Jesus is looking for. If you cannot accept the lowliest people of status like children in their time, then you are not receiving his kingdom. Today it feels poetic that we have 
received children into our midst today to discuss this attribute. Because I believe kids exemplify this attribute and we should learn from them. Does anyone in here struggle like receiving a gift? Anyone in here like struggle receiving a gift? I, I do all the time. If someone were to walk up to me right now and hand me a $100 bill, I would probably like raise a skeptical eyebrow at them. I'm like, uh, what's the catch here? And maybe you're holier than me and you would just say, no, no, no. Like, I'm good. I don't need that free $100. Whatever. That's great. I don't understand you. But if you have a child and a piece of candy and a toy or whatever is the equivalent of $100 to them and you offer it to them, they're just going to be grabbing it, taking it and running off gleefully happy that they have something new. And immediately they're probably going to go up to their parents. And what's the parent going to do? They're going to look at whoever gave the gift and say, are you sure? (laughs) And if you're like me, maybe slightly pessimistic, I'd be like, yeah, I gave them the gift. Of course, I'm okay with them keeping it. Or if you're just much nicer than me, you just nod your head and you say, yes, they can keep it. This is what I'm talking about. Jesus does not want us raising a skeptical eye at the gift of his kingdom, wondering if he will be enough. Instead, he calls us to welcome his kingdom and receive the gift of his grace like a child with no strings attached and no mind, sorry, and a mind unfettered by a a favor that they might owe to someone. So number one, we have welcoming. Number two, we have they receive freely. And then number three, we have dependent. They solely rely on others and are okay with it. Harvey, my son, is the most dependent person I know right now. Every single little thing he would want to do is solely dependent on me or Sarah. And what's so weird is that he doesn't even, he's not even bothered by it. Like Harvey is fine with with me changing his diapers, with me moving him around, with me feeding him, playing with him. And I understand that Harvey doesn't know any better at this point. And that independence is going to some, at some point come with age. Heck, I will for sure be the person that as he turns 18, trying to shove him out the door saying, hey, we've done what we can with you. It's time for you to go and find out what the Lord has for you, separate from mom and dad. And it's gonna be a great day when Harvey claims his independence. But as some of you parents know, there is always going to be that time where Harvey comes back because he needs us. He depends on us for something, needs us. And we'll be there to help like the good parents that Sarah and I are endeavoring to be. But ultimately, independence is what we want for Harvey. And we live in a time where independence might be one of the greatest driving factors in our society. I mean, America's birthday is Independence Day. And we were founded on the idea that becoming independent from those oppressive European overlords, people back then dreamed of their own religious freedom and political freedom, which led to this great nation that we live in now. And I would argue that this same independence birthed in our forefathers runs thick in our collective nation's veins. How often do you see someone at work trying to do too much? someone that is so incapable of delegating a task that they've strapped themselves to a buoy and you're just waiting for them to drown. But Taylor, this is the American way. 
Something can't get done unless it's the way I envision it being completed. And I would say wrong. Don't ever over-exaggerate the importance of your position. If you can't leave your job for one week because it's gonna fall apart without you, then that's probably a bigger indictment on your leadership than my indictment on the American way. I could die right now and God's kingdom will continue to move in ways I could never imagine. Children's ministry would continue. The zone would surely still be popping and high schoolers and middle schoolers here would be continuing to seek the Lord on a regular basis. And you wanna know why? It's because God's kingdom is not dependent on me being part of it. It's crazy, right? Being part of God's kingdom has nothing to do with what I can bring to the table. It's not predicated on the skills or the ideas that I have. Jesus simply asks us to leave everything behind, depend on him, and to be okay with it. And I was gonna try and come up with a, a story, a profound story that maybe illustrated this concept of dependency. But Mark, being empowered by the Holy Spirit, has already done that for us. And so we're gonna look at the next section in our Bible, titled the, the Rich Young Ruler or The Rich Young Man. It has many names. But we're gonna start in verse 17, if you'll read with me. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This passage on the rich young man cuts me down to the marrow, because I can see myself failing in this exact scenario. According to the world's metrics, we are all rich in this room. Did you know that if you have more than $93,000 in assets, you are in the top 10% of the world? That means if you have a house and a car, you're in the top 10%. And more than that, if you're in this room, I would venture a guess that you're in the top 20% easily. That means by our world's definition that we are rich. 80% of the world is not where you are. And it's important to understand this because Jesus is making a very strong statement about the rich and the kingdom of God through the story of the rich young man. 
Jesus in this story is asking the rich young man to welcome the kingdom of God like a child. And the perceptions of the young man are revealed in the very first question he asks. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do, Jesus, to be good enough? What must I do, Jesus, to be part of your kingdom? What must I do, Jesus, to belong to your family? He goes straight to legalism, trying to earn, trying to do. And according to the commentaries I read on this passage, Jesus knew this young man's heart was sincere in asking the question, as well as being sincere in believing that he was showing obedience to the laws Jesus had asked about him. And that's why it says in Mark that Jesus loved him, but that did not get him off the hook. Jesus went for one thing that this young man had not yet surrendered to him, his wealth. And notice that Jesus doesn't ask for 10%. It's pretty safe to assume that this guy knew his Levitican law. He was already tithing. No, instead, what Jesus is asking him to do is exhibit full dependence on him like a child, offering every material, spiritual, emotional, and physical thing we can to him. A life completely surrendered to Jesus is a life where generosity is our response. It's a life where everything that we have is held in a very loose grip. That we do not place our security in the comforts that wealth brings us because at a moment's notice, he may ask us for us to surrender it all. Will we receive the kingdom like children depending on his promises? Or will we be like the young man, face fallen, admitting defeat, telling ourselves that if Jesus asks for my comfort and my wealth, that the cost is just too high. You see, as we grow older, there's this really funny thing that happens. We become less welcoming. We receive things less freely. And we depend less and less on God because we're making more money, we're smarter, and generally just are less bothered by things. So why do we even need God? Well, let's look at what Jesus has to say to the disciples because it's profound. Jesus goes on in his teaching to tell us that it will be difficult for us rich people to get into heaven. And that's probably the understatement of the century because he compares the probability of success for rich people to fitting the largest animals that Israelites are familiar with, camels, and trying to push it through the smallest opening that they would be familiar with at the time, the eye of a needle. And I'm aware of Theophilact's teaching on this text where the eye of a needle refers to a small gate in Jerusalem that a camel would have to bend down and unload its burdens to get through, making the comparison of the small gate in Jerusalem to that of getting into the kingdom of God. But scholars agree that this misses the shock value of what Jesus is trying to tell us, which was this, if you are rich, it's impossible to get into the kingdom of God. Full stop. That's why he says it twice with emphasis. And it's why the disciples are shocked and then even more shocked. Jesus is intentionally upending a popular Jewish belief that being rich meant that you had a divine favor or a blessing. I love the disciples in this portion of scripture because at this point, I'm sure they were all looking at each other like, yo, we're good. We're good. We gave up everything unlike that Yahoo who just talked to Jesus. But then it dawned on them. The image is so stark that it would have to be impossible for them too. 
And I say Peter here in this next part because Peter just in scripture is always asking the question that we're all wondering to ourselves, right? And so in my mind, Peter asks Jesus what we would all be thinking in that moment, which is then who can be saved? And after he floats that question out, I imagine wherever they are, whether it's in a house or in a church or on the street, that silence just falls on them as the implication and the weight of that question falls on them because they realize what's at stake. And then Jesus says to them, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna quote the Expositor's Bible commentary on this reading of verse 27 because it's so clear and it's so good, I just don't think I could put it better myself. It'll be on the screen. This answer from Jesus makes clear that salvation is totally the work of God. Apart from the grace of God, it is impossible for anyone, especially the rich, to enter God's kingdom. Humanly speaking, none can be saved by their own efforts, but what we can never do for ourselves, God does for us. Okay, it's time to put a bow on it. Church family, look around to those little ones from earlier. It's time to be honest with ourselves. Have we been exhibiting a childlike faith? I invite you to think back to your younger days at a time where you welcomed all people of all walks of life simply because you didn't know any better. I want you to think about receiving freely the gift of God's grace, just as a child would with candy or a toy. And finally, church, I want us to be renewed in our dependence on God. That throughout this week, we would be reminded that none of us can be saved by our own efforts. It's dependence on what God has done for us that makes us strong, not our own independence and certainly not our wealth. So Lord, I'm, I'm gonna ask you guys to just pause here for a moment, just like a minute. Just think about your, your coming week and consider, am I being childlike in my faith? And then I'll close this in prayer. the places where we are off, bringing it to our attention. But I pray as we read the word this week, that it would be like a two-edged sword, cutting us to the marrow and places where we are off, challenging us. But I pray that we would be welcoming, we would receive freely and that we would be wholly dependent on you like a child. 
And all God's people said, amen.